Hello, welcome to Little Things First. This is Jim Martin with Rachel Nance. All right, so we are going to be talking to uh, two scholars today. I have the article right here. The name of it is Hearing and Listening, Bridging the Leadership Divide Between School Connectedness and Students' Lived Realities by Sarah Thomas and Lawrence Parker. So, and you have little bit of history with uh, Dr. Parker, right? Yeah, I was just going to say I'm super excited because both of these folks are local. Um, and I actually local to, a, local to Utah, right? Oh, local to Utah, right? Utah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, I took a class during my graduate studies with Dr. Parker. And he's amazing. He's, uh, I picture him with like one of those golfer hats that has a little snap right here. I don't know. What are those hats called? I don't know. Golfer hats? It's not a fedora, but it's like the old time golfer hats with a little snap. And then a yellow legal pad that is just scribbled all over in his handwriting. And he would like flip pages and just quoting, quoting, quoting. He's like incredible. He knows, he knows his stuff. So I haven't connected with him for four years. I'm so happy to see him this morning. That's awesome. So we'll have to see if he's in his hat. What did he wear that hat to class? Is that why you have that? Um, yeah, I think he took the hat off once he started teaching, but I still picture him in that hat. Huh. Okay. Does he golf? I don't think so. Okay. Just I don't like, know how he has the time to golf. He's got like kids and his um, partner works as well. And, uh, and he is reading a lot, I'm sure. Okay. All right. Well, let's bring uh, both of them in because they're in the waiting room and see what they have to say about student connectedness and how we can better reach our marginalized students, especially in high schools. Excellent. So here they are. Hello, hello. Wow, is that Rachel Nance? Yes, Dr. Parker. <laughs> wow, that is really cool. I know. Are you going to turn your camera on so I can see you? Oh, yeah. there you are. Yeah. Where are oh, you? You're in the sagebrush, Larry. I know, I'm in Tanzania, and the, my what? cheetah's keeping track of me. <laughs> I see it right behind your head there. My cheetah keeps me honest. Awesome. <laughs> So we did a little bit of an intro already and we talked a little bit about how Rachel, you know, and you go way back to like, you know, times at the university and yeah. said you wore like golfing hats. So what are yeah. those hats called with the little snap right there? Little hats with the snap. Sarah, does he still wear those? They're like 1940s golfer hats with the little snap right there. Mm -hmm. oh, no. I got, I got to look at the old pictures and find out. <laughs> you moved on to a different style. Yeah. Remember, this was back in the day when Heather and I would pick you up at the track station. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you were traveling during the winter and you had a little cap. Oh, that's right. I had my, 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 um, my old, um, I got my old, um, like, my, my, my border hat, my, my Chinese Russian border hat. Yeah. Oh, that's not yeah. how I remember it, but yeah, yeah kept my head, kept my bald head cold, warm. Right, right. <laughs> thank, well, you, so, thank you, thank you, for agreeing to meet with us today. We just um, so this podcast has been going for a few years, and Tracy Vandeventer used to be the 
co-host with me and she actually works for the state, yeah, USBE. And she brought this article to my attention and said, we should reach out to Sarah and uh, Dr. Parker and see if they'd be willing to uh, meet with us on our podcast. And then she bailed on me. She's, <laughs> she's um, uh, just too tied up with other things to be able to do the podcast right now. So, but I wanted to still continue with this wonderful opportunity to talk about your work. And Rachel has been kind enough. Uh, we go way back too. Uh, we used to work together in Salt Lake District. So uh, she's been kind enough to jump into the podcast and, and uh, be a co-host with me. So um, thanks for joining us today. And Sarah, you are a doctor as well, right? Yes. Yes. So I didn't want to call Larry, Dr. Parker, and then Sarah, Sarah. I'm the only one on the screen without the PhD behind my name. So there you go. (laughs) Y'all are doctors and I'm just a MED. No. So um, why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourselves and, you know, how you got connected in this work. Do you want me to start? I, um, I was a math teacher and just connected with my students and heard their stories and just thought there's got to be something more than just math content as much as I loved it. And so um, I found this um, doctorate program with where I met Dr. Parker and the rest was just kind of history. I wanted to tell these kids stories and I have a journalism background as well. So it was much more narrative based and uh, it kind of took on a life of its own. So now I'm I took that opportunity and now I'm an assistant principal and working with an amazing team that actually puts this work into place. So it's, it's been really awesome. Great. And Dr. Parker, how about you? Sure. Um, I guess I'll connect, I'll try to connect Rachel and Sarah to this whole thing because um, when I first got to the Utah, I was really determined to try to make sure that the classes that I taught in educational leadership had some type of physical connection to the real world of schools. And so I always would count on either on Rachel and then subsequent um, successors to see if we can get a session schedule that the school that she was at 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 the time, Northwest Middle School, in terms of bringing our class there to hear exactly how things were going in terms of equity work, uh, social justice leadership, what that looked like on the ground in terms of, of applying the theory we were learning in, in the classroom to what was actually happening in the field. Fast forward to when I started to do that work when I was associate dean at the Honors College and going out into some of the high schools and I met up with, well, I met up with Sarah beforehand in terms of the classes that we took together. But then she started to invite me to some of the things that she was doing at Granger High School. And then I started to notice how there was this way in which there was a sense of belonging that I, I, we could see, that I could see in terms of some of the things that were happening at a school like Granger. But there was a lack of a sense of, of um, connectedness. And so out of that, configuration, I started to talk with Sarah about trying to turn her capstone project that was that this that this paper came out of into something that we could actually share in terms of a smaller research article that then we could then um, get try to get published and then make it work in terms of things like this in terms of reaching out to folks like you. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you for having us. 
Well, that's, I think what I said uh, before you came on, Larry, was that you know your research and you know what's out there, but you do have this amazing way of also still having your, you know, your thumb on the pulse of reality and wanting to make sure that, that we all talk about what we're looking at, right? Not just the theoretical, but like what really is in front of our faces as educators in the moment. So um, it was exciting to read your article and, and see you know, I know Granger a little bit and see what you looked at, Sarah. And then, you know, one of my big questions, and I know Jim already gave you some questions, but I'm, I'm wondering about your transition from Granger to West High. And those are really different locales in the mm -hmm. city and how, uh, what you've come to learn even mm -hmm. deeper since you've moved to West, but what also has been, you've been able to transfer and apply, but I know Jim has other questions he wants. He already prepped you with, so. Oh, I think we should start with that. That's great. So I'll start with when I was working at Granger, it, it, I mean, it's a huge school. It was 3,200 kids when I was there. There's 3,500 kids now. And just how is it possible to get a trusted adult in every kid's life when you have that many kids having that many life experiences and, and they're very different life experiences. All 3,500 kids have 3,500 different backgrounds and issues and concerns and worries. And uh, and there was kind of a cap at Granger. Um, the adults in the school talked about maybe it was a learned helplessness idea that kids didn't know what was possible because the world that they were in didn't really show what was possible, which was really frustrating and discouraging. And so I really wanted to spend my time getting to know kids and hearing their stories so that we could connect on a one-on-one -on -one basis in that way. And so that I could relate to them as this, I, I was from West Valley, but you know, I'm a much different demographic than a lot of the students, most of the students at Granger. Um, but then moving to West, it's very similar in a lot of ways. And then there's the East side demographic where in Salt Lake district, it goes across the Valley. So we had very, very affluent families with lots of educational opportunities all the way to a similar demographic to Granger's. And so that's been an interesting, an interesting to, thing to see in one building, where in my previous district, it was across the valley and now it's in one building. Um, the most amazing thing is that I'm on a team of six people and three of us have doctorates with focus, areas of focus in social justice and everything we do is based on student needs and what is best for students. And so I really feel like I was just plopped into a situation where we get to do this work that I was hoping to do all along. So that's been amazing. That's fantastic. Um, so talk a little bit about the this article is about connectedness mm -hmm. and um, what is connectedness for those people who haven't read the article. Uh, what is connectedness and how does it differ from something like the model? Right. And, and Dr. Parker kind of talked about that. Connectedness is, so belonging is being part of something bigger than yourself, right? Like kids attending school and feeling like they belong in the classroom space and in the hallway and at the activities and, and being invested in things that the school is hosting. Um, and then connectedness is feeling like you are part of that fabric, whether you're an athlete or part of the band or, or student government, whatever it is that you're part of, you are connected to the creation of what that school is doing, that teachers and adults in the building are reaching out 
to know your stories and hear your stories. Most of my kids, especially the kids that I interviewed for, well, they're adults now, but for the article, they wanted to tell their stories, but they needed to have that trust first. And so connectedness comes from building that trust and sharing stories with each other and being vulnerable with what's going on in our lives outside of school. Yeah, I think, Jim, to add to that, and this is something that I told a lot of my um, students during the pandemic, just what we were doing this pandemic, that when, during the shutdowns was that, look, the learning is not going to probably happen in terms of you, the terms of trying to get the students to do online learning and that they're not going to be able to keep up. The parents are shut down. There's a frustration. There's a, a lack of hope. There's a sense of, of being lost. The only thing that you've got going as an, as an administrator now is building, trying to use relationality and relationships and connectedness so that once things start to come back to quote unquote normal, you can use that as a springboard to get the kids motivated to even think about coming back to school. The sense of connectedness is critical in terms of building a relationality with other students and parents and families so that you know what they want and, and then you can try to help empower them. So for example, in the article that we wrote about, the high schools were really, a lot of comprehensive high schools are really focused on just making sure that the kids graduate, just making sure that the kids are finishing up and, they're, they're, and they can be okay and then that's it. Whereas the five that we that were interviewed they really had more different aspirations despite all the issues that they were facing. They really wanted to go to college. They wanted to do something more. And you only find that out through relationality, through connectedness. If it wasn't for the connectedness that Sarah had with them, she wouldn't have found out their stories in terms of what they really wanted and what they wanted from the school and what they wanted from the leadership. So that really is the difference in terms of really noticing what students want and what is gonna be helpful for them. And the connectedness is key, is central to that in terms of relationality that I think is missing in a lot of, of programs that we've got about educational leadership and administration. Yeah, and I was um, really surprised to find that part of that whole connectedness, connectedness um, equation was, um, was, it, 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 high expectations is not absent in that equation. Yeah. Like, that's a very integral part of that. And the, the students really could sense when, when they weren't being held to a high standard. They knew when they weren't being held to the same standard as maybe some other students and, and wanted to be. And that was part of feeling connected. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was surprising to me because I haven't always equated you know, academic achievement or high academic expectations with connectedness. Yeah, I can. I think that um, that was there was a huge connection there, and students students who were connected to their teachers wanted to they wanted to risk more, and they were willing to be more vulnerable and try more things. And then they they you know that was kids don't want to do things. No one wants to do things that they're not good at. And particularly being a math teacher, a lot of kids walked into my classroom with walls up by the time they were sophomores and juniors, and. Our goal, my goal with them as a teacher was to 
help them feel comfortable in that space so that then they would be willing to take risks. And my greatest success was when kids left my classroom um, liking math a little bit more and having some having some ownership over that those skills. And I know that looking across the the scope of students, both as an administrator and then as a teacher as well, that kids were willing to do more and try more things when they felt that their teacher was there for them and felt like they they could try different things. So it it was all about having a high level of rigor and high expectation while being willing to support them. My, my visual imagery with this, because I'm a huge sports fan, is kids wanting to clear a hurdle. So like a, being in a track meet and clearing the hurdle. My job as a teacher and our job as adults in schools is to build the scaffold all the way up so that the kid can clear the hurdle, but we're never going to lower the height of the hurdle for kids. Um, and, and they know that. They know when you're building the scaffolding and they know when you're lowering the level because you don't think they can do it. So th those things go hand in hand for me. Yeah, that part really rang true for me. With, um, so I'm consulting now and I do some monitoring visits with two different alternative high schools here in, in Utah. And they're in CSI status because their graduation rates are low, which I mean, you know, they're alternative high schools. So they get the kids who the traditional setting hasn't met their needs. And their focus obviously is credit recovery because they're in CSI status because of low graduation rates. So they need to get their kids in credit recovery. But I've worked with them a lot on trying to understand that for these kids to really care, they have to go beyond credit recovery. Like for these kids, that is not the end all be all. Like they want more than that. They know that there's a big life beyond quote unquote, that senior year graduation. And so when these two schools have really thought differently, one is a youth and care um, school in um, Mount Pleasant. And they start like they built a studio, sound studio. So kids are in there rapping, like making their own beats. They've created a graphics novel library. So now students are actually reading because they wanna read graphic novels. They brought in an art teacher. So students are like, making ceramics, like they're making things that contribute to their community's lives, right? And thus their, their graduation rate has skyrocketed and it was not because they focused on credit recovery. It was because they focused on true learning. They focused on who are our kids and what do they want to contribute to or what do they want to develop? And these opportunities beyond credit recovery, a sense of belonging, being seen, being connected has really made a huge difference, even with, you know, kids who are in the system. So it's really, it was good to, to see you mention that. And I want to add to that, that a huge thing that continues to come back to me and really a driver in my work here was in my capstone. And then in the article with Dr. Parker is our education system was created hundreds of years ago for a very small demographic for affluent Christian males. And it hasn't changed all that much, although our student demographics in our schools, particularly in Salt Lake City and the west side of Granite District, are very different. Mm -hmm. And so why do we want kids, all of our kids, to fit this same setting that's been here for hundreds of years when we could have a school system that molds to what they need 
and supports kids through that and then contributes to our culture and our community in much different ways. So I love that kids are having an opportunity to learn to rap and do all those things because that's how they're going to contribute after school too. Yeah. What gets in the way of connectedness in our high schools? Dr. Parker, maybe you can speak a little bit to this and um, Dr. Thomas, I, I, you know, it seems, I think a lot of people listening might say, well, that's straightforward, that's easy, you know, connecting with youth, but obviously it's not because <laughs> there seems to be some barriers there. What, what gets in the way of that? And what are some little things that schools can start to do, leaders, teachers, uh, to better connect with their uh, students? Sure, I'll let you go first and I'll follow up. <laughs> okay, I would say the number one thing that gets in the way of being able to do that is too little time and too much to get through. Um, our content is, is so jam-packed and there's so much that kids need to know, but it, it really, we don't have time and space set aside for purely focused on connectedness and relationship building and social emotional learning, which we always knew that we needed that before. And then post pandemic, we see how, how crucial that is. Dr. Parker and I were just talking about how worried people are about going back into a shutdown or that idea if if COVID gets worse, because that was so awful for kids, emotional well-being, let alone learning. And we need in our schools time and place to be able to do that. And then also as teachers, we need to know how to do that. Um, we're very well trained in our content areas. We're experts in those in those fields, but we're not as I wouldn't say this for everyone, but for me personally, I was not as comfortable at first with connecting with kids. I didn't know how to do that. Um, I was very good at math though. And so I think we need more support in those areas and we need more time to do that. I think to add to what Sarah's saying, from, a, from, a, from looking at the research and then going into schools, I'm finding that there is a sense of being satisfied with kids being flatlined. Mm. And if, if there's no fights, if there are no arguments, if, if, everybody, if there's a, a little bargain that happens around, you stay in your corner, I'll stay in my corner, let me, let, let me do my administrative work, let me do my teaching, and then and everything's cool, then everything, then, then it, the status quo is not disrupted. And therefore, it legitimizes the normalization of failure with kids of color and kids who are marginalized. And that's one thing that everybody like says, you use that term a lot, Dr. Parker. And I say, yeah, because it's true. That we, we've allowed the normalization of failure to be part of the regular experience in public schools. And the only way that you're going to try to dis, you got to just, you got to disrupt it as, an, as a leader. If you're going into a school and you're seeing this flat line across the school, then you've got to get your staff together and to, in terms of saying, how can we disrupt this? How can we get it so that the kids, so that kids are engaged, staff are engaged, staff are taking chances. I'm taking chances in, in terms of my vulnerability to get kids motivated so that they are moving in the right direction around what it is that they want to do. So I think that's one aspect. Another aspect too, is that in terms of bureaucratic policy, we've been so 
driven by accountability, state standards, et cetera, et cetera, which is fine. You got to do that in terms of workforce readiness and, and re de dealing with the benchmarks around academic um, 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 know wherewithal in terms of knowing what your, your kids have to know at the, at the end of the year. But what's lost is that sense of you've got to be able to hook these kids in to get them motivated in terms of being able to do this. And some may not may not do it, but you've got to be able to still connect with them anyway. And that's what's really lost in terms of being able to, um, and that's, that's it contributes to, to, norm, to the normalization of failure. Because if the kids aren't engaging in that, then you then all these assumptions come in and saying, well, they're urban kids, they're, you know, they've got these problems, they've got this, they've got that. And all that, those stereotypes start feeding into a mentality of really writing these kids off. And that was one of the things we tried to talk about in the article is that it's this context of being urban, even though it's it's not like a big city, it's still urban. So therefore they've got problems that we can't deal with. But no, it's you can't do coded language still. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that needs to get disrupted in terms of changing that normalization of failure because it happens too much. Yeah, and I think that the the trauma and pressure of COVID has made that even worse because I've heard a lot of, especially secondary schools, leaders, teachers say, well, we just have to make sure that there is so, social emotional well-being is taken care of and then we can get to the academics, which is, you know, it made it one question I had is like in relation to that, sure, we want them to be mentally and emotionally healthy. But we are trained, just like you said, Dr. Thomas, to be math teachers or to be language arts teachers. We are not trained to be, you know, social workers or therapists or mental health experts. So our, I believe our avenue to create some stability and some predictability and some sense of efficacy and purpose is through our content areas. So math teachers avenue to have these kids have some social emotional stability is through success in math class or success in language arts. And, and I get really concerned when I hear people say, well, we can't focus on academics right now. You know, COVID has just done such a, a zinger on our community. We really have to make sure that our kids are just feeling happy and feeling loved. It, it worries me. Yeah, we got to be able to do all at the same time. Social emotional, we've got to do grade level content. We've got to do recovery content from, you know, where kids missed, whether it's due to COVID or something before that. We have to do all of that right now. Um, that was a big eye opener for me as a teacher that kids who didn't know their math facts from third and fourth grade I don't go back and teach them those things only. You teach them the current content and you teach them what they're missing together. And then it's the social emotional part and it's behavior management and it's emotional regulation. And it's all, that's, that's why teachers are overwhelmed because they were doing all of those things before. And now it's so much more prominent with the pandemic. Right. I think if we had a magic wand, smaller class sizes and training for teachers on how to have those conversations in the midst of content areas and being able to slow down the content a little bit so we can focus on really learning that and building together in a cooperative space, 
all of those things need to happen, but you can't really do that with 40 kids in a classroom. So have you seen any movement towards you know, enacting some of the, the suggestions, recommendations from your article? I mean, you said um, at your current school, you're seeing um, some real advocacy because so many of the administrative staff have um, social justice backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, is there movement there at your school? Are you seeing, you know, some bright spots or maybe some other settings that you're familiar with that are doing some things that are making this article more of a reality? I have at my school. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the team that I'm part of. We, like I said, everything is focused on student first, what's best for students, those conversations. We have a lot of young, innovative teachers who are going through teacher prep programs that really have a lot of these things in their focus. So teachers are coming out of college with some of this background. Um, so I'm, re I'm really excited to be at my school with the students that we get to serve and the families because things are, are going well there. So yeah, I, I'm happy about that. I think that a lot of administrators and teachers are super overwhelmed with everything that's going on with the pandemic. And um, I, from not a social work background, but what, from what I can observe, I don't know that students are really knowing how to, and adults are knowing how to come back into the same space after a full year and a year and a half for a lot of them not being in the same space. I think that's been really hard for a lot of kids and a lot of adults. And so we're working on it and things are moving forward in my school. Um, but, but that has been a hard piece to come back from the pandemic. I think to add to what Sarah is saying, and this is the one thing that I've started to do when I've gone into some of the high schools is to say, is to, I, I literally would take the names off some of the data of students who've gotten into particular programs at the U of U, but I'll list like their other demographic features like test scores, courses they've taken, all the, the metrics. And I'll say, okay, this group of students got into the U, this, um, into this program at the U. This group of students didn't, and they're from, all from your high school. What can you do to move this group that didn't get in into more of this group that did get in? Because at the end of the day, pandemic or no pandemic, your school is going to be judged by how many kids you get into college. And if your kids are not getting into college and they're just college eligible and instead of being college ready, and there's a big difference, mm -hmm. You've got to be able to make sure that you probe every aspect of the classes that they take, how those classes are being taught, the tests that they're taking, the ways in which those tests are being, being done. Um, all the aspects of college prep have to be unpacked in terms of what this means to get this group of kids who didn't get in to move into this group that did get in. And that leads to hard conversations that people need to have about who your kids are as learners? How do they learn? What do they want to learn? How can you adjust their, your teaching in terms of changing that? As an administrator, how can you empower your teachers to do this? How can you move into the classroom so that you're taking up responsibility in terms of creating that sense of, of care and that sense of being able to take chances and take risk 
and being able to support your teachers and your students and involve the community in terms of all this so that you can eventually get into the point of saying, yeah, our, our kids are really college, not only are they college eligible, but they're college ready. And I think that that's really where the parts of what we talked about in terms of school connectedness lead into triggering some of those changes that need to be made from an administrative side on this whole thing? Yeah, that's one question I had is that, you know, Sarah, as a, a classroom teacher and someone who is interested in the human beings that you're teaching, mm-hmm. right? You, you can, you, not everyone, but you obviously could naturally create these connections with kids, with marginalized kids, with kids who are living in what we would say is kind of a chaotic outside world. But as you transition from a classroom teacher into an administrator, I think what Dr. Parker is talking about is, especially in a building with 3,500 kids or even West High has 2,200 kids or whatever. 26. 2,600 kids. It really has to go from, okay, I'm gonna hope some of my teachers will connect with my kids who have the greatest needs because that connectedness has to be genuine and authentic and personally driven. But as administrators, we have to create systems and structures and policies Mm -hmm. that do what Dr. Parker is saying, which is creating more pathways and entry points for our kids who traditionally are marginalized to connect and then move forward in the ways that they want to and that that we as a system benefit from. So how do you move from like that classroom personal connection because I am who I am and I care about these kids to an administrator who might have, you know, 50 teachers who are actually not really good at connecting with kids even though they've been in the game for a really long time and maybe 10 of them, we don't want them to really connect with kids because they actually might do some damage, (laughs) right? So what kind of systems and structures do we create as administrators to help nurture these authentic, genuine, personal avenues of success? Right. So one of our um, takeaways from my capstone project that I don't know that we've um, highlighted as much in the article, but really is modeling that and having consistent modeling from those administrators who are really good at that. And so we have six of us who, so from a district level, our focus has been on social emotional learning with warm welcomings, engaging strategies, and then optimistic closures. Everything we do this past year, whether it's over Zoom or in-person, small gatherings or large faculty meetings, we have started with those warm welcomings and really building connections among the adults in our schools. We've had Um, times where we've brought them together and bought breakfast just for teachers to have time to socialize, right? Or PTA has come in and brought lunch in the middle of the day and we've brought to pull teachers out of their classrooms, out of their silos to engage with each other. So we, we really have modeled that. We have really been building opportunities for belonging, um, like tailgate parties before our first football game where all West High employees are invited to come be part of this so that we can create connection among the adults in the school, then model it. Um, We're expanding some of our branding to be more inclusive of all demographics within our building to show who is represented by the West High W 
um, so that we can do those. And then we've been very intentional to be in alignment in our classroom observations. We have traded departments so that we can be in different classrooms to make sure we're consistent with um, what, what's going in in our classrooms. What does engagement look like? Our, our really big focus this year has been on literacy and student language acquisition because we're in TSI status for um, our multi-language -learn, multi learners, but really school-wide, we have far too many students who are below grade level in reading. So not only are students learning English, but they're still learning to read um, on a grand scale. And so our focus really has been a cross-content area on language development and reading and literacy. So we're really, really pushing teachers to make sure every single day kids have opportunities to be talking, to be writing, to be reading and hearing about the content that they're doing. So we've really been pushing that school-wide and it's been amazing to watch teachers try new things and then see how well it works and, and changes are being made in our classrooms. Um, Rachel, to, to, to follow up on what Sarah's talked about, and in my class, and I think I'm sure you probably saw this, I usually cover like four models that I've got from some professors, colleagues, friends of mine up in Wisconsin, because and their research that they were doing. There are models around leadership that are important for people to understand. You can have administrators who know social justice leadership and also know the the tools, knowledge, and, and um, abilities to get it done. Then you've got a sector of principals who, who get social justice, but they don't get how to work with kids. They may not know, know how the resources, they may not have the skills to, to, to make it happen. Then you've got a group of principals uh, of, and school leaders who know the ins and outs of the mechanics of a district and how to work it in terms of how to work resources but they don't have a social distance bone in their body and they, and they just couldn't figure it out. And then you got the fourth group that just doesn't know social distance and they also don't know anything about the district and herds reading resources. And that's a problematic group in and of itself. Right. But the groups that, are, that get it together are usually the first group because they know what to do around social justice and they know how to get it done in terms of the savvy that's needed to, to garner resources and to make the resources work. But then also you've got a group that, um, that may know social justice, but they don't know how to get it done, but they do know that they have teachers and teacher leaders in their schools that know how to get it done. So, and, and I can give, and there are, there are some examples of schools in this valley that can do that in terms of principals who may not know what to do, but they know that they've got staff who can be pretty empowering in terms of saying, this is how we're gonna work in this in terms of detracking our ninth grade so that they can be um, engaged learners. This is what we're gonna do in terms of changing our AP classes so that we can get more black and brown and BIPOC students in, the, in these classes. This is what we're gonna do in terms of being able to um, connect more in terms of real, really making college readiness work so that the kids from West Side School, West Side areas can feel at home if they go to a place like like an East Side school and then eventually end up at the University of Utah. So there's these ways in which I think that, the, that, that we can work with the principals who don't know social justice or they know it, but they don't know how to gather those resources. 
to get them to think about how do you empower your staff who know how to do this to make it work? And I think that there are examples out there in the Valley that um, can show us this, this um, avenue in terms of a pathway to, to lead toward leadership change in this area. I love that. That's true. I mean, it, it is, it takes a gigantic team, right? It's the whole village doing the work. It's not just the leader. So I love that. And that makes, leads me, sorry, Jim, I'm, I, I dominate these conversations because um, I get so excited. Um, to my last question, Jim, is, uh, you know, your article is so compelling because of the student voice. And I'm sure your whole action research and then moving into this article and your capstone is all like the foundation is student voice. And so as an administrator, do you have anything going on at West where you are creating space for student voice to tell y'all at West what you do need to do differently? I mean, I know, you know, you, your team sounds really awesome. I'm imagining the majority of them are white, you know, middle class. <laughs> Uh, suburban living folks like you and me. And so are, have you been able to create a space for West High students to really help you all create what the kind of system that you want? We're, we're definitely building that with a focus on student voice. Um, we just did a survey that we sent to anyone who works at West as well as all students and their, their parents or families or caregivers that what is it that West High needs and we want your input and we want your involvement. Um, we, the response on that was, was fair, meaning quantity of responders, but um, lots of student feedback and, and um, responses so that we can hear what students are saying. We've also sent out surveys asking for community members to be involved in the school. We need substitutes. We need supervision. We've asked for families and caregivers to come and be part of that if they're willing and interested and able. And then um, we have a really good athletics department that is much more representative of our community, um, particularly with coaches. And so we've really, <clears throat> excuse me, we've really gone with their leadership. <clears throat> our football coach and our girls basketball coach is a former West High student. And he, he rounds up his community of football and basketball players. And it has been so fun to let them drive a lot of our conversations because he has tapped into a pulse that I have no idea about. Our head principal is actually a former student, parent, teacher, assistant principal, and now principal of West. So he is very much involved in the heart of that community. Um, and then our athletic director has done an amazing job of creating a captain's council where captains from every athletic team and activity gets together a couple of times a year to share what they're going through, to share what athletics needs, what students need. And then we've broken down our admin team this year into age group teams. So one administrator and two counselors are working with a grade. So I'm with ninth grade and all four grade levels. And then our ELP seventh and eighth grade group have met with the student leaders in those age groups to hear what's going on in their world, to hear what those leaders are, are feeling from their student body. So we're, we're putting some of those things in place. It needs to be expanded, but um, 
really student voice is what needs to drive us because our, our adult population is very white, very suburban, and we need to hear what students in that, in the student body in our West High demographics are, are sharing with us. Yeah, I think this conversation about belonging and connectedness, yesterday we met with Mike Anderson who <clears throat> wrote a book about um, the external motivation and intrinsic motivation. Um, and one of the intrinsic motivators that he says we all like are hardwired for is um, a sense of belonging. And so if we're really looking at how to motivate our students, that belongingness is like one of the strongest pathways. So there seems to be a theme in our interviews um, right. must mean that it's really important for us to be paying attention to. I think so. And I want to add to that, that not only having, you know, one of our areas of focus as an admin team, we've been talking about getting student input on who is represented in this school and how do we show that in this school and this 100 year old building that still operates like it was built in 1922. How do we show the very demographics that are represented there and part of it is having conversation being data driven and who is represented in our AP and IB classes who should be represented who wants to be in those courses and don't feel like it's for them. So we're really trying to expand our athletics programs and then expand our highly rigorous academic courses so that they are more representative of the whole school. And any kid who wants to be a part of anything has that opportunity. Well, I am so happy to hear all that's going on. You know, I was the an administrator at Northwest Middle School that feeds into West High for six years. And, and we kind of went toe to toe on a number of points in regard to transitioning our eighth graders to your school. So I, love that community and always will. And I'm really happy to hear the work that you're all doing. Yeah, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to have your work out there and be able to learn from it, uh, centering student voice and connectedness. And I think that's an important message for all of our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Have a great day and happy okay. week. Yeah, can we get a copy of this? Oh, absolutely. We'll let you know when, it, when it's published and, and get it to you. Yeah, absolutely. No, my dean likes to have all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks so so good to see you, Dr. Parker. Yes, yeah, good to see you too, Rachel. Thank you. Good to see you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thank you, right. Dr. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. See you later, Sarah.